From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. And by the way, if you're thinking of going out today, don't. If you, if you have a duvet, get under it and stay under it and enjoy yourself. And then I went to the CUS in Leeson Street, which taught Latin, and I couldn't um, understand yeah. English, so that just didn't suit <laughs> me at all. So Bray was battered by the by the weather bomb, and the bobble from Bannons came bounding down the street. See the alliteration possibilities. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, why you need to be careful when you're borrowing from mum and dad to buy your first home, what the booster jab means for you, and when your stepfather-in-law turns out to be a tissue match. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that'll take Moderna, Pfizer, Roundtree's, whatever you've got, here's my arm. The storm-buffeted newsings from this morning's Ryan Tiberty show are where we get this borrow-drenched playback daily underway. And it has to be said, the musings on the news have very little news content today, but we'll forgive that. It's almost Christmas after all. Ryan's first shiny item demanding attention was a visit to Grafton Street he made yesterday. Fair play to the girls of Colossal Isacon who were selling the ISPCC badges on Grafton Street in Dublin yesterday. I bought one off one of them and they, uh, that badge is a little holly pin. You probably, you probably know it if you, if you can. Not that you're going to be out and about today, but if you can support them, please do wonderful charity. Uh, do great things. So well done to them. Met them yesterday. I was trying to get into Bewley's to buy the, the, the buns that I like. Um, but there was a queue at the door. Eventually I popped my head in around the side. I said, can I, I just want to get, I don't want to stay. What do I do? And the guy said, oh, no, there's a shop around the corner. You know the little lane where you might go to Mass or be just passing through to the Paris Court Town Centre? That lane, there's a shop. You can go in there and get your things. But Bewley's was gorgeous. I forgot how lovely it was. And um, I think it uh, has kind of found its mojo again, which is very, very nice to see. Some of the traditions, which is what we need. And the lights are on. And town is lovely in Dublin, certainly. I hope it's the same all around the country. But it's quiet. You can see uh, less footfall about the place. No doubt about that. Um, so I hope uh, businesses are doing okay under the circumstances. And and just while we're on this subject of, of uh, the bit of goodness, given the day that's in it. And by the way, if you're thinking of going out today, don't. If you, if you have a duvet, get under it and stay under it and enjoy yourself. Please, because it's it, today was built for old movies. Maybe black and white. Maybe start Band of Brothers from the beginning. If you haven't seen it, start it from the beginning and get stuck into it. Catch up on that episode of Succession you might have missed yesterday. It's a great day for television and radio, obviously. Listen to the radio all day. Claire's coming up. She's getting ready. I saw her upstairs. She's getting ready for a show. She's, it's, it's, and then you've got Joe. And, just, and if you have a fire, light it immediately. Especially a real one. Oh, Anyway, I don't think I'll stick around too long here today. <laughs> I'm going to live up to my own expectations and watch stuff and just relax. So that's the plan. We'll have to wait for the figures to see if the Tubbs-inspired great radio turn-off of 2021 happens. But the words nose and face do come to mind. The listener-generated news continues with a distinct Karen flavour about it. I was in a shop on Saturday, says Lisa. And a young man was serving customers. Really lovely lad. Smiling, happy, all good. Until some cretin, sorry Ryan, of a woman shouted at him because she missed her collection time. She hadn't turned up to collect her reservation, but he was blamed. I have three adult children, and maybe that's why I, I, I couldn't keep my beak out when I see this carry on. So I had to step in and tell the lady she ought to be ashamed of herself bullying a person doing his job. She tried to turn her anger on me. Wrong move, lady. I called the manager, Karen Style, the manager. And she then went out all out, loony tunes with this guy and me and the poor young lad. And so he told her, get out. And this, in that weather, is a decent manager. People need to cop on and stop bullying staff in shops. Happy Monday. I'm glad you stood up for the guy behind the counter who's just doing his job. The retail staff have a lot on their plates at the moment. And then, 
an outbreak of news from beyond the listener sphere. Poor old Kamala Harris is having a terrible time um, in the polls and just talk about bullying. She's been denounced by a former staff member as a bully who inflicted constant soul-destroying criticism. Did you ever find a point in your career at work where you were soul-destroyed? It's a, it's a very profound expression. It's a terrible place to be. Uh, but this claim came after the Washington Post in an exhaustive investigation spoke to 18 former aides stretching back over Kamala Harris's career as a prosecutor and politician. Uh, over the past week alone, she has seen four key staff members leave, including her communications director and press secretary. And that has not helped her popularity and approval ratings remain in the low 40s, making her one of the most unpopular vice presidents of modern time. One former aide, not one of the four who recently left, told the Washington Post, it's clear that you're not working with somebody who's willing to do the prep and the work. With Kamala, you have to put up with a a constant amount of soul-destroying criticism and also her own lack of confidence. So you're constantly sort of propping up a bully and it's not really clear why. Many politicians, including Joe Biden, are surrounded by members of staff who have worked for them for decades but Ms. Harris's history with staff means only two in her current office worked for her before last year. Only two, and that's a big, big office. But it does say a lot about, about people, um, how long they work with their colleagues. And you'll know soon enough if they're good to work with or not. Um, but Kamala Harris, not, not in a good place there at the moment. I've never met the woman. I don't know anything really about her, but I had high hopes. Didn't we all? Well, no, we all didn't, obviously. But still, it'd be nice if a woman elected to high office in the US didn't have people popping up saying how soul-destroying she is. Unless she is actually soul-destroying, of course, in which case, okay, call it out. But enough of my yakking. Pull the other one, guaranteed to raise groans all around the the dinner table on Christmas Day. The best cracker jokes of 2021. Well, I've had to tweak this one for an Irish audience. Uh, There are 20 jokes from the crackers here, and they're, they're terrible. And I don't mean terrible, funny, terrible. They're just awful. So I'm going to give you three that are mildly okay. In fact, even two of them are okay. So, for example, which relative will not be at Tony Hulan's Christmas dinner? Ant- answer. Anti-vaxxer. <laughs> oh, don't bother texting and giving out lads. Just relax and light the fire and you'll be grand. Why can Netflix afford calamari at Christmas? Because they're squids in. Relatively niche gag. Uh, this isn't funny, but it's a, a again niche political gag for the UK. Why did Matt Hancock have to buy his aide really expensive Christmas presents? Because she had him up against a wall. <laughs> okay, okay, enough of that one. That's not. I'm not even having that. I don't get it. What does? Oh, well, let's move on. Please step into the breach, Mr. Hewson. Bono did a recent Zoom interview with Variety magazine. Okay. And what's he talking about? Well, he was, he seems to be very uh, attached to this film Sing 2, in which he plays a reclusive lion ex-rock star. And he's been doing a few interviews about this animated musical film about singing animals, in fairness. And here he is in this interview talking about uh, Sinead O'Connor. Are you familiar with Sinead O'Connor's cover version of Prince is Nothing Compares to You? Of course, yeah. So, you, you know, Sinead, I'm not sure she likes me very much anymore, but um, she's really an extraordinary talent and one of the great singers um, of the age. And when she sings, she's not singing for a living. And, um, 
And you, when you listen to that song or if you watch the video, you, you just feel that. And, 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 and songs are very revealing, even if it's a cover version. You know, you, 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 you know people, people write themselves into any situation. Yeah, Armas Bonham, uh, who was not quite sure if Sinead O'Connor likes him anymore, but um, they uh, talking about about her influence, I suppose you can say, on him. It's nearly that time. What sort of tree are you getting for Christmas trees? I'm getting mine this weekend. Um, there's some talk of a pampas Christmas tree. So you decorate pampas grass. Sounds horrible. Looking at a picture of it. It is horrible. Okay. But there are ter- a certain type of people who like pampas grass. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. What does that mean? Oh, time to move on again, I think. I mentioned The Mirror Cracked, which I watched a terrible film uh, starring Angela Lansbury, who's alive and well, incidentally. Um, and she admitted herself, she said, I enjoyed making it, but it was a desperate film. And I got this um, message in about the uh, film saying, I heard your somewhat less than enthusiastic review of The Mirror Cracked on Friday. And you may not be aware that it's generally accepted that the plot of the, mo- of the book was inspired by a tragic experience in the real life of the Hollywood star Jean Tierney. During World War II, while she was pregnant, Jean Tierney made an appearance in the Hollywood canteen where members of the Allied military got to mingle with celebrities. Shortly afterwards, she became ill with German measles, rubella, and later gave birth prematurely to a daughter, Daria, who was deaf, partially blind and severely mentally disabled. And Tierney was obliged to institutionalise Daria where she remained for much of her life. And Jean Tierney had a mental breakdown, which led to several of her own stays in mental hospitals. Years later, says my correspondent, a woman approached Tierney at a tennis party and bragged that because she was such a big fan of Tierney's, she had broken her rubella quarantine during the war, had sneaked off base to attend that night at the Hollywood canteen. Tierney was inconsolable at the idea that her own popularity and fame had caused her daughter's severe disabilities. And in her autobiography... She recounted that she had listened to the fans gushing without comment before turning and walking away. And she wrote, after that, I didn't care whatever, whether ever again I was anyone's favourite actress. What a story. It's very sad and was well publicised at the time, so would have been known to Agatha Christie, whose book The Mirror Cracked was published in 1962. That is fascinating. I did not know that. The origin story for Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked. That's the sort of thing we come to the newsings for. So, in the words of Debye, mission accomplished. Let's leave the newsings there for today. Well done all. What do you need to buy your first home? Well, lots of money, obviously. Claire Byrne threw some stats at us this morning. Four in ten first-time buyers are getting cash handouts from the bank of mam and dad. A new buyer has about 52 grand in the bank before they secure their first home. This is according to the Banking and Payments Federation Ireland. You know that buyers need a 10% deposit under central bank rules, but with prices rising, parents of first-time buyers are having to stump up at least some of the cash. Claire was joined in studio by financial planner and How to Be Good with Money presenter Owen McGee, who wasn't at all surprised by the stats. If you think about it, it's an absolute perfect storm. We're in a situation where coming out of, hopefully coming out of a pandemic, we are in a situation where people have more savings than they've ever had before. Like, we do forget that there were 2 million people, there was lots of people who suffered financially, but there was also 2 million people in Ireland who were better off financially as a result of COVID. And that's individuals are looking to buy a house, but also their parents are in a better position. We've more savings than we've ever had before. You couple that with really high rents and a situation where parents are looking at their kids, putting money into someone else's mortgage and paying really high rents. 
and house prices are going up and up and people are getting worried about will they ever get on the ladder. It's a bit of a warped situation though, isn't it? Because the rule is in place to make sure you have enough cash, you're able to pay back your mortgage, you're not borrowing too much but you're getting the money from your parents. So you're circumventing the rule. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you look at it, the rule is there The rule is there so that you have skin in the game. And that's really what it comes down to. That, And it's been proven, particularly during the global financial crisis in the US, they had lots of stats on it, that if you didn't, if you someone who goes into negative equity um, will have less of a motivation to pay the mortgage on a month-to-month basis. So it's there to protect the bank because you have skin, skin in the game and that you'll pay your mortgage. Or your parents have skin in the game. Yes. And it's interesting, when you look at the rules for rebuilding Ireland, which is the home loans from the government where the council distribute them they have a requirement in there that says 3% of the house price has to come from your own savings the rest can be gifted the rest can be a refund of your taxes through the help to buy scheme but 3% has to come from your own savings So they want to see where the money is coming from Yeah, they want to see that at least 3% of the overall savings that you have have you have been accumulated they also look for proof that you've been saving it yourself over a 12 month period and I think the banks if they were genuinely interested in you having skill in the game and you and not just protecting themselves would probably look at that too So in your experience do banks and other lenders look for that information if they don't have to? They just want to make sure that you have the deposit that the, that the 10% is there or 20% is there for first time buyers in my don't mind yeah. where it comes yeah, from they're not, they're not as concerned or they're not concerned about where it's coming from as long as it's there um, they will make sure that that the, the parent doesn't have any say on the house or any ownership on the house and they'll look for um, confirmation usually in writing on that just to say that it's it's they, they don't own 10% of the house because they gave you a 10% of the deposit. But to be fair, this is the, the environment we're in. Like, we are in a position now, like there was a stat in the, in, in the paper today that said back in 2004, 60% of first-time buyers were under the age of 30 we're now at 25% are under the age of 30. That's a dramatic reduction. And that just shows you that people have to save for much longer before they're getting anywhere near the deposit that's required. Even with or without help from parents, it's still a huge monumental task to be able to buy a house. Average house price in Dublin is 400,000. Across the country is 258,000 euros. Like that's a really difficult ask of anyone to come up with 10% of that. Plus, and a lot of people look at it, it's 10%. You also have to cover solicitors fees, valuation, there's a whole pile of other costs and you have to put a sofa, a microwave and the first shopping into the house too. So it's it's a big expense for people and if they can take advantage of some help from mum and dad, they are going to do it. They're not going to turn around and say, I'm not taking it at this because they feel that they've no other choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ultimately have to fix the supply problem here and that's where the problem comes back to. Well, it's, it's great for people as well who are in a position to be able to do this, whose parents have this money. What are the implications though? Are there tax implications? There are. So the, the situation is, is anyone in their lifetime can get 335,000 from their parents. So from mum and dad can give you a total of 335,000 before you pay any tax. Beyond that, you're paying tax um, and the tax is, is required to be paid very quickly. So if you don't have liquid assets, your means you're selling properties. If you don't have cash to pay it, you're going to sell properties to try and get that money to pay off to pay off the tax man. You if you give your parent if your parents give you money towards the cost of your life, like your general upbringing, that's fine. If they give you money towards the cost of college, 
that's fine. It doesn't come out of the 335. If they put a reasonable contribution towards your wedding, now what's reasonable? Um, reasonable is a funny, I've heard two different variations of this. If you don't have boys on playing, um, that's a reasonable contribution. Or if you're not going abroad, which I thought was an interesting one, that's a reasonable contribution. But it is a monetary amount. Um, that If it's a reasonable contribution to a wedding, that doesn't come off the 335. Any gift towards a deposit for a house does come off the 335 allowance. So you have to declare that, do you? You, you don't have to declare it until you get to certain limits close to the 335. But when you're sitting in years to come, if you're sitting in a solicitor's office and they say, have you ever been given a gift before? You will have to declare it at that point. And if the overall inheritance that you get breaks that 335 allowance, including that gift, you will end up in a position where you're paying tax. So it's an interesting conundrum. You know the way some people are mad enough to take on the task of getting married and buying a house in the same year. If you're one of the parents and you're thinking about giving them a gift towards the house, give them the gift towards the wedding instead and there might be less tax implications in the long run because gift towards wedding is fine, gift towards houses isn't. I've seen in private practice, I would have always, and now granted the type of clients I use in pri- that we deal with in private practice would have some money. Let's just put it like that. But I would have a kind of, a couple of years ago, it would have been kind of 50-50 that people's parents' responsibilities financially kind of finished at college. 50% of people, I'd get them through their education, whether that's junior leaving or college, I'd get them to that point and then they can row their own boat from a financial point of view. And then 50% of people, I know, get them through their education and get them on the property ladder and then I'm done. That, yeah. that figure has changed to 70, 80% of people would be, oh no, I need to get them on the property ladder because if I don't help them out, they're never getting there by Interesting themselves. because, and as well as that with rising house prices, 20 or 10% of the purchase price of the house is now a lot more money. It's a huge amount more money. Financial planner Owen McGee and Claire Byrne discussing the huge challenges for first-time buyers in today's property market. this afternoon's live line, Joe Duffy heard from Rachel in Bray, who told him about some unusual activity on the main street. Rachel, what happened this morning? Where were you? Um, so I was en route to work and I was in Starbucks in Bray okay. um, and it was myself and two of the baristas uh, were just looking out the window, uh, commenting on the weather. And all of a sudden we saw a bobble. A bubble? A bobble. A bobble? <laughs> yeah. How, how big was the bobble? Um, God, I'd say if it was beside me, um, it would probably have been up to like above my knee anyway. Okay, and that was just rolling down the street. Yeah, um, it and was. Where, where did the bobble fobble from? It bobbled from, um, so it was up on Bray Main Street. It was attached to Bannon's Jewelers. Um, and obviously with the wind, it just... Took off. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the alliteration possibilities are endless with the bobbles behaving badly. <laughs> And Rachel, um, it's it's like, well, it's also a warning to people. Everyone has, sorry, outdoor public lighting, Christmas decorations are up. Was that a was that a Christmas decoration bauble and bannons, or was it a normal bauble and bannons? Yeah, it was. It was a Christmas decoration, and I don't know if you've actually watched the video. Oh, I have. Yeah, mesmerised. You can see a car swerving to avoid yeah. it. Now, it did. I kind of followed it. I stopped the video and I followed its little journey um, down Bray Main Street. And it seemed to have kind of veered off into another kind of business and down a residential road. So it, it got off the road fairly quick and it didn't cause any, any crashes, thankfully. Now, Rachel, you must be very, very tall if you say the bauble only came up to your to below your knee. Because when I was looking at it, it looked at that bauble was much bigger than you were saying it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like it's, I'm, I'm definitely not tall. I'm very short. Um, but yeah, it's, I suppose it's kind of hard to gauge. Um, but yeah, it was big enough. 
And the weather, was that the end of the weather bomb in Bray? With the bobble um, no, from it Bannon's. was kind of it was it was in the middle of it. So it was about half eight this morning, and um, so we still got battered for at least another hour afterwards. So Bray was battered by the by the weather bomb, and the bobble from Bannon's came bounding down the street. See the alliteration possibilities. <laughs> is, that, is that the end of it or the bend of it? The, the, the bend of the bobble yes. from Bannon's in Bray. <laughs> from the weather bomb. Now, is what 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 has Bray survived? Hopefully. Um, yeah, just about. Um, oh, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a, a huge amount of damage. Um, power is still on, and um, the rain has stopped anyway for now. Okay. Well, so far, I think one of the warnings from Metairn and the likes of Alan and indeed the government have been so strong in the last 24 hours that hopefully, fingers crossed, people stay in. Listen to what Alan is saying about Claire going back into red at four o'clock. Listen to what Alan is saying about tonight, the winds uh, doubling back and having another whack at us. And listen to what Alan is saying about rain. So if you can, do absolutely uh, stay indoors and don't take any risks in Dublin. Furbigator saying to people be really careful about falling electricity wires because they are obviously live and uh, very, very dangerous. Are you there, Margie Morphy from Summerhill in County Mead? Today is full of alliteration. Are you there, Margie? No. How are you? Yeah, come come, come, come closer to me, will you, Margie? What are you doing? Are you, how, is, how is Mead faring at this stage? I'm in the house. I'm in the house. I'm staying indoors now in Summerhill okay. County Mead and I'm Summer- watching the the wind howling outside now but uh, so far now it's not as bad as what the other parts of the country have but God you wouldn't be going for a walk but yeah, it's and, like that. and what's the prediction Alan for Mead? Yeah so Mead will see the increase again tonight as well um, so it will see some, some strong winds this afternoon but really probably after midnight tonight they'll really start to pick up again in Mead as well so uh, a very heavy Spell of uh, rain as well, moving through at times. So if it's been nice, you might want to make sure you tape it down. A good, yeah, yeah. A good point, bins. Yeah, really bins. Um, okay, Margie, you've you've written, you've listened, you were listening there to Rachel talking about the bauble from Bray bounding down the main street uh, as after being hit by the weather bomb, and you've written a quick poem. I written just a few lines. And what's, is, is, is Rachel is Rachel gone? She is. Do you, do you, what's it called? It's called the Barra Bomb. <laughs> the okay. bomb. And well then, oh. get, get get the wind in your sails there, and take I, it take a deep breath, a deep breath, deep and breath, and fill your lungs and perform this. We need it badly, and it's a warning to people: please stay indoors and please okay. be careful. Okay, Margie Murphy from Summerhill in County Mead, currently being battered by Barra, uh, has written a poem. Uh, could be that uh, the, the poem is called the Barra Bomb. Off you go, Margie. Okay, Joe. Thanks. The Barra Bomb. Don't go to work. Stay where you are. Don't take a plane, a train or a car. I'm calling in to see you. I'm not staying very long. My thunder will call you, cause you headaches. My wind is very strong. Lock up your sons and daughters and your garden gnomes. I'll cause merry havoc all around your home. I know that I'm not wanted. You'll want me to go, even though I'm famous on telly and radio. I'll see you all later. I'll be wearing red. Watch me from the telly. Watch me on the telly from the comfort of your bed. That's it, Joe. Well Short done. And well, done. <laughs> well, well, that that leads me into the next question to Alan O'Reilly. Alan, when will we see the back of Barra? Uh, really, it'll be Thursday, but by by tomorrow evening, things will be improving. Um, but it's still going to be rather breezy, even tomorrow evening in in parts of the north and northwest. So Thursday, really, before we really see the back of Barra, before he really has moved on. 
Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather giving Joe Duffy an update on how long Storm Barra will be with us on this afternoon's Live Line. Hotelier John Brennan has written a memoir called My Name is John, J-H-O-N. And he spoke to Ryan Tuberty about his struggles with dyslexia and the teacher who saved him from it. What I want to do is to begin this morning with uh, you taking us back to third class in school. And go into the seat for me in a second. You're in the uniform and the teacher is talking away. What, where, what, what's happening in your head? Nothing. I just went to school every... I never I never minded going to school. I never laid in the bed in the morning thinking, oh, God, I have to get out of bed and go to school. No way, I hate this. Never, Mum never had to drag me out the front door. I always ran up the road. And that may be because I'm the youngest of five and there's eight years between me and the next. So the only children I met was when I went to school. So I was delighted to go to school. But when I went in, it was blank. Yeah. And the, the regime of teaching just didn't suit the brain. And it just didn't um, resonate with me at all. And I'd look at books and I'd... They'd, at that time, you'd be asked to read a paragraph of a, um, a book and mm. the teacher would call you and I'd be there dreading that they'd be asked to do it because I wouldn't get past the first word. And I just couldn't do it. I just didn't. I just the brain just wasn't wired for it. And the, and the curriculum wasn't suited to me and I wasn't suited to the curriculum. And there was no alternative. That was the only um, story in town. You had to do it and that was it. But it just didn't suit did the window get a lot of attention from you? No, the motorbike out? magazines. The, yeah. the, the motorbike magazines were, were your were your go-to. I went to school every day with a bag that was a foot thick and it was 11 inches of motorbike magazines and one inch of school books. Yeah, OK. But actually, it's the funny thing now because when you'd read the motorbike magazine, that'd be the exact same today now with boat magazines. When I get a magazine, <laughs> I'd read it and I'd read it from cover to cover, but I will find something in a magazine from 10 years ago in two seconds. I'd have a photographic memory like that because you have an interest in it. The, the school books just didn't interest me at all. I just There was nothing in it that I was able to comprehend and it was just a waste of time. Uh, was it debilitating uh, and belittling or did you have a coping mechanism to get you through that? Um, I never found it belittling. I, just, I, f- I found it difficult to sit in the class hoping that you weren't going to be asked the question. That, yeah. was, the, that was the difficult but was one. Was that a fear, like yeah, a no, dread? Yeah, that would be a fear, yeah. absolutely, 100%. But <laughs> thankfully in every class I was in there was a few, other with, few <laughs> others with me. <laughs> I wasn't on my own. But uh, that would be the fear. Um, and... There wasn't a frustration and there should have been a frustration because yeah. the others were getting on in class and I was still in the lower 10% of the class and I wasn't moving anywhere. So there should have been a frustration, which there wasn't. But I, I was never I was never singled out from um, um, other pupils in the class to say that he's stupid or he's thicker. That never really happened. That never struck a chord with me at all. But you just went and you just sat there and you looked at the books and you just got nothing. Nothing at all. No. Um, talk to me about your mother, because yeah. if if you're uh, a, a, a child struggling like that, um, your mother either is kind of embarrassed about, yes. about it, yeah. or she's a, a, a doer. Sick. A doer. Yeah. Was she, she was category B, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about her, and because there's only so much a parent can do, and particularly yeah. at that time you're talking about, yeah. where there was total ignorance about it, and yeah. we talk about dyslexia here, yeah, yeah. and such a stupid name, isn't it? Well, it's for, it is a daft name. It's a, it's a, yeah. I'm so glad you yeah. point this out because <laughs> it's, it's 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 so complicated. It's it so hard to spell. And an X. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. You think they? 
call it something a lot more. I must look it up and see where it came from because it makes no sense. I think it's possibly Greek or something, is it? Well, pro- it's yeah, all it Greek be. to well, us. Certainly, right? it was all Greek. The English was Greek as well. So. But that's the problem. <laughs> but again, your, mo- your mother, talk to yes. me about her and the importance. Mom, um, I suppose, been the youngest of five, and as I say, there was eight years between myself and Susan. I was at home, and they were nearly all gone because yeah. um, by the time I was four, they were all in secondary school. Um, so she struggled with me definitely, and I know Finbar, who we'll talk to in a few minutes ago, who's the teacher who rescued me. Um, he, she had his ear burnt um, every two weeks I believe she was up and down the road worrying about me what's wrong with him what can we do this that and the other and thankfully at the age of 15 she threw in the towel and said Grant if you want to leave at the interest are to yeah. leave yeah. Um, but it was tough I'd say on her because Jamie and Francis had gone to college um, Susan and Catherine had um, left school and gone to college and I was there and there was no hope I was even finishing school never mind going to college yeah. so I suppose when you're, when she compares children and against the other four she's saying oh my god what will happen him in the end and I remember we had a priest who'd come and visit us regularly from Belfast and he sat down she obviously burnt his ear at some stage Mm. anyway and he gave me a little test of some description and I remember I went out I was sent out then after the kitchen into the hall and I was standing at the door listening of course the jar at the door to hear what he was going to say Mm -hmm. and she says don't he said don't worry about him he'll be fine so I think that gave her some comfort okay. um, but it was a long time coming because it was tough and I know for you're a parent and I'm a parent if it happens in our household you would be worried no but you know, yeah but you see happiness isn't about our success is happiness it's nothing to yeah. do with money or and and were you, you a happy child oh yeah always happy yeah oh, you, had, you had your motorbike magazines oh, yeah, you weren't kind of I was in my own world I was delirious yeah. okay just because I couldn't read that book there it didn't bother me in what the about slide. results in, in, in results in, yeah. no, no an E was a B at the back of the, at the, <laughs> back of the convenient dyslexia yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a la carte. I knew how to do a B from yeah. an E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I went into CUS in Leeson Street, which taught Latin, and I couldn't um, understand yeah. English, so that just didn't suit me <laughs> at all. Didn't the, suit. The, the, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the teacher that changes everything. Yes. And I think every I'm always interested in when I talk to a guest about mm. that teacher because it takes us off the beaten track of of the humdrum of one's yeah. life. Yeah. And brings us into and most people who I interview like to deflect anyway. Yes. Uh, from their own story, and in this case, we're going to take that. As a welcome deflection and actually the fates have been kind to us today because the teachers are at home Yes, for, yeah, yeah. for uh, reasons yeah. uh, already mentioned. Um, talk to me about Mr O'Driscoll. Yeah, Finbar. Finbar came from West Cork and came to Dublin I think it was his first um, job as a teacher after coming out of college and he took a shining to me for some reason we'll know in a minute maybe mm. um, and he took an interest in me mm. and it was funny because I was in West Cork during the summer and I met another colleague who was in school which was well Corey and he said to me we weren't talking about the book we weren't talking about Finbar we weren't talking about anything we went to school together I hadn't seen him for 30 years and he said you know something he said Finbar O'Driscoll cared wow. and that's the most important word because he didn't cr- teach the curriculum he taught the child and he saw issues with some of us in the class and he knew they needed help and he went outside the boundaries of the nine to four or whatever the case would be nine to five um, and looked after us and only for that I wouldn't be able to read or write today. That's a remarkably big yeah. thing to say. What do you think I mean before we speak to him what did you see in him because you were only a boy then so what yeah. did you see in this he, adult because adults are so big and teachers are so authoritative. He was a small adult. <laughs> oh was he? Okay. No no he was just out of college and he was young and he was into sport and he was into the things we were into and he, he, we were able to bond with him unlike other teachers who were older and different generation and he saw beyond the curriculum I believe and he was able to take his class and look after them as individuals as opposed to one big class Mm. and he actually taught me for three years he taught me for fourth class I think fifth and sixth so he had a big influence on me overall and I would he's the guy who who said 
to mum, listen, you better get him assessed because there's something going on there that's beyond what we can do in the classroom. And back then, it was actually, it's funny actually, because when I was writing the book and when it was published, I'm thinking this, this won't make sense to anyone today because the, the assistance and the help in classrooms today is much yeah. greater than what it would have been in the late 70s. But the amount of people who have written to me and have phoned me and called me and said, listen, I can't believe that's my son, that's, that's my daughter. Yeah. Oh, that's and my just, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. And they're in the class and they're, and they're, they're being missed. Yeah. And I think that's where the next part of my story goes where you go into the third level um, but we won't go there. We'll, we'll go there in a second but I want to talk to you that, that wonderful teacher Finbar O'Driscoll. Good morning Finbar, nice to have you on the show this morning. Good morning Ryan, thank you for uh, having me on. Do you, do you recall John as a child I wonder? Can you tell, tell me about that? Oh I do indeed yeah, I remember it was my it was my first class, I had 31 pupils in the class and uh, the other teachers used to slag me because I had the, I had the smallest class in the school. <laughs> But uh, maybe what um, people didn't realise was within the 31, uh, there was a group of six, we'll say, that would have struggled, particularly with reading and maybe some with maths as well. And um, I was kind of uh, full of the joys and uh, ready for, you know, my teaching career. And um, I wanted to progress things right from the beginning. So... I used to use a lot of testing, you know, weekly, or weekly be it spelling, tables, whatever. Um, and uh, then the Drumcondra test then became kind of part of the scene um, by the time they were in uh, sixth class. So um, I suddenly began to realize that there was a huge gap and that uh, between uh, the top end of the class and the lower end, and um, there was no point in kind of um, getting the some of the weaker pupils. Um, I know, as John has just pointed out there, uh, some of them would have been embarrassed, but in the early days, you, you kind of, it was kind of common to, during reading to get um, to the pupils to read. But you saw, I found out very quickly those for whom this was a major, a major issue. So, um, they were, I, I grouped them and kind of worked with that, that group mm. specifically uh, to try and give them extra help, as it were. And that that was the equivalent of a life raft for you, mm. because this was this essentially changed your life. Yeah, maybe saved your life. Well, I'd say if Finber didn't take that on. I wouldn't be able to read or write today. There's no doubt about that. And the other five that he did the same, and that was only one class. How many classes has he teached in his career? Yeah. Uh, but just the difference that one teacher can make is phenomenal. Like I've had loads of teachers, but none of them went beyond what was expected in the daily routine to look after him. And exactly what Fimbers after saying there is exactly what he did. He wanted to just look after every single person in the class. Group the six was outside of the main bunch and worked on us as a separate entity within the classroom. A lot of, uh, some teachers, not a lot, but a lot, some teachers feel, you know, my job is from nine to four, I'm out, I don't have to do this extracurricular stuff and I certainly don't need to st uh, take a child out of their, yes. uh, the shadows because of dyslexia. Uh, Finbar, what, what was it about you as a teacher that felt there was more to it than just, as John pointed out, the state curriculum, that there was a more, if you like to use the modern expression as it is, a holistic approach to, to teaching? I don't know, maybe it just uh, kind of came naturally. Uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of set out to do anything um, differently. That's Finbar O'Driscoll, retired teacher who took the young John Brennan under his wing and helped him with his dyslexia. Finbar and John were talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning.
If you're over the age of 30 and you're going for your third or booster vaccine at one of the HSE mass vaccination centres, you'll likely be getting the Moderna vaccine. It's the other mRNA vaccine. You know, the one that's been in far less widespread use than the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So, on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Claire asked Professor Cleana O'Farrelly, Chair of Comparative Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, if Moderna is as effective as Pfizer-BioNTech. I wish I could answer with any great certainty, but um, certainly as soon as I get offered my booster, I'll take whatever I get. I mean, there's no doubt. A a really lovely paper just came out um, in The Lancet yesterday, um, led by, not led, but spoken to by a wonderful professor from Oxford called Professor Snape, um, (laughs) who (laughs) carried out this wonderful study. Can you believe it? (laughs) But but, uh, it's a huge um, study looking at the effectiveness of a whole variety of boosters and um, basically saying that all of them um, increase antibodies. This study doesn't look at T-cells. Um, which um, everybody seems to forget. Well, they did forget because we can't measure them. I mean, the boosters are probably driving our T-cells and our memory response as importantly as the antibodies. And that probably is going to give some protection against any variant, Mm -hmm. including the Omicron. And just on that one, the the CEO of Moderna spoke recently about the efficacy of vaccines against Omicron. And he himself expressed doubts about Moderna being as effective against Omicron as it is against other variants. What did you think of him saying that? Again, I I listened to his interview again and actually I was very impressed. I mean, he was just being very clear. He was saying that the antibody, he was very clear about it. He was saying that the antibodies generated by the Moderna um, spike may not be as um, effective against the the new variant as as we would like. I mean, again, this is entirely predictable. Um, And so he was talking about Moderna working on other ones. But in the meantime, um, we need to be boosting our immune systems as as often as we can um, because it's clear that um, that the immunity um, to spike spike does fade in some people. Now, again, the variable care, this is also really difficult. Again, I think all your, your listeners understand this. There's huge variability. So what happens in one person does not necessarily happen in another. And uh, a thing we need to remind ourselves of is that even the very best of vaccines doesn't work in everybody, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are you happy that the HSE has taken this strategy, it's decided that it's going to use up its stocks of Moderna before it goes out of date? Oh, absolutely. We absolutely have to use everything. Now, having said that, you know, one of my um, major interests is uh, how we get vaccines into the rest of the world. Um, and, uh, but I'm not sure that the, the, the piles that we have here in Ireland would actually get distributed in, the, um, uh, in other countries. So absolutely, they should be used up. And uh, if we could spend a few minutes talking or a second talking about uh, vaccine equity, I think that would be really useful. Well, that really came to the fore, didn't it, in in the aftermath of the the discovery of Omicron, because variants are going to arise. You've explained this to us time and time again. They are going to arise when populations are unvaccinated. Exactly, exactly. And we have to get the technologies out. While Moderna and Pfizer have, um, and the other companies, AstraZeneca, have done Trojan work, we, we clearly need more vaccines and we need more vaccine technologies and we need to get the vaccine technologies out there to other countries. And Ireland absolutely should be taking a leadership role here. The EU is sitting on its hands. Um, and I, I think we, could, we should absolutely be pushing on this. And we mm-hmm. call to the, the, um, the Minister for Health and the Minister for Enterprise and 
the the Taoiseach to to take a leadership take leadership here. Yes, I mean, even if it's from a selfish uh, interest self interest <laughs> point of view, I mean, this isn't over until everybody gets the shot. This is exactly it, Claire. And um, it's heartbreaking to hear stories from our hospitals um, still being overwhelmed with, with people. Now, um, they are mostly people who have health, the people who are vaccinated who are having to go to hospital um, often have health issues. But um, there, is, there are unvaccinated people, but there's going to be constantly new, new variants coming from around the world um, where people aren't vaccinated. So if we want to protect our health system, we absolutely have to make sure that everybody across the world is protected. Okay, and we have heard from Pfizer that the first batch of vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-olds, they'll be arriving in Ireland next week. And NIAC has advised that that vaccine be rolled out to vulnerable children first and the HSE should continue to direct resources towards adults and the booster shots. We know infection rates are really high in this cohort. So do, do you think that that's the right course of action or maybe should it be shifted and changed now given that a lot of infection is occurring in that uh, 5 to 11-year-old group? Yeah, I have huge sympathy for the decision-making here. I mean, uh, it's, it's ideally, you'd love to get vaccines into everybody. Um, but uh, certainly the most vulnerable, I understand that it's the most vulnerable children are going to be vaccinated first. There's a significant cohort of, of, of vulnerable children here who may well get very sick if they get COVID. And there is a risk of long COVID in the children. But um, certainly we need to be using the vaccines to protect our, our most vulnerable in the older and amongst uh, HSE people. That's Professor Cleana O'Farrelly, Chair of Comparative Immunology at TCD, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the HSE's booster vaccine rollout strategy. (music) 31-year-old John Egan, former Westmeath senior footballer, is enjoying a new lease of life, thanks to his father-in-law, Ollie, giving him one of his kidneys. Both men spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon. What age were you when you knew you had something up with your kidney? Um, I was 15 when I found out that I had some sort of kidney issue anyway. I sort of dealt with it through my teens and early 20s and into my mid-20s, but it was probably only when I was 28 I was told or figured out that it would... It was that serious, to be honest with you, and that it would have resulted in dialysis and a kidney transplant. So Mm. uh, as far as I was aware, it was just a kidney issue up until until then. But but you were more than living with it. You were were playing... County football at all levels. Yeah, I was. I suppose there was nothing going to. In I suppose there was nothing going to stop me playing county football. I suppose when you're playing football and you decide that you want to concentrate on on Gaelic, all you want to do is play with your county. Yeah. So I suppose I did have sort of some symptoms and a couple of issues throughout the years because of the kidneys. But look, at I I did get a a decent stint playing in Westmead, so I'm delighted with that as well. Uh, what's your club? At Lone Right. And it was in the prep for a season that you discovered that your kidney function was way below what it should be. Yeah, so Jerry Flynn, who's the Westmead doctor, would have given us medicals throughout the years at the start of the year. And I think for the previous years, you know, there was always a small drop in function, but it's nothing was nothing too drastic. But at the start of the 2018 season, I think there was like a 30% drop and it went down to 27 or 28%. So right. decided to look a lot more into it and put me in front of a, a specialist in Tullamore. And then throughout that season, there was a, a sort of serious de- deterioration in my health and my energy levels and then going back on medications as well, which 
which affected everything, you know. And what else? So low energy levels, what else were you seeing? Um, trouble sleeping. Um, just this thing that a lot of kidney patients seem to get called restless legs. It's, oh, yeah. You tend to get it when you're trying to sleep but your legs feel like they're they're running a marathon you know and mm-hmm. you can't you can't settle i was picking up gout which is extremely painful and then just serious issues with cramping as well so any sort of muscle in my body could could get a cramp after any type of exercise you know okay and when you were talking to the experts the consultants were they saying that dialysis was on the cards and did they say that you, ultimately you will need a transplant yeah, that was it really, I suppose, when I start getting the test done and they start getting the kidney function and the various levels. Um, it was just a case of going on to medication, see if they can hold it for as long as possible because obviously mm. you want to, they want you to be kept off dialysis for as long as possible because it affects your daily living. But um, yeah, it was sort of told to me in 2018 that at some stage in between three to five years, you're going to be expected to, okay. to get a transplant, yeah. Now let's establish the relationship between you and Ollie. Uh, so you met Tracy yeah you were in transition year and was, she was yeah. in fifth year so slightly yeah. older than you yeah she is a slightly older yeah. yeah that was important at the time doesn't really matter now I suppose uh, no it's still important <laughs> is it right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Tracy's mum is Dinah it, that's correct yeah. and, and not long after you met Tracy Dinah met Ollie is that the way it went Ollie yep that's it yeah 16 years ago right. I confirmed the timing with John today did you right because <laughs> dates are important Ollie yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are right uh, so you're younger than people would think listening to the radio because immediately when you say 31 father-in-law maybe late yeah. 50s 60s you're actually it's what age stepfather-in-law to be yeah. uh-huh. yes <laughs> stepfather-in-law to be right I'm, for, I'm 41 41 okay so, so you've known John for what 16 years or yeah, so yeah 16 15 16 years and yeah. obviously as we as John got a bit older I suppose we didn't spend when John is a teenager and I'm in my mid late 20s we didn't hang out a whole lot but as John got older and started sp- spending more time in our house we spent a lot more time together then yeah so and um, we got to know each other obviously quite a bit and Tracy over the years as well obviously so yeah and w- would you say you're, you're friends exactly yeah yeah We're friends you know it's just yeah. not like when we chat hits friends when we have a beer or even in the hospital the way we'd communicate would be you know friends it's not a I won't say it's not a caring thing but it's made other than a you know that yeah, a different type of relationship it's not a typical son-in-law father-in-law no, relationship no 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 no, no, no. okay right um, so, so you had been aware of John's story around the kidney and the fact that he might at some stage need a kidney transplant and when did you get inklings that he was putting it out there that somebody you know, in the extended family or friends so might I'd donate say, something. I'd say it was through um, not that terrible, maybe the earlier part of this year or the end of last year. Like if you meet John out and about, you wouldn't know, but you like you wouldn't have said, looking at John earlier in the year, God, the chap's not well. John's always well presented in that. But then yeah. I just obviously became aware through Dinah and Tracy that this is the way it's going. And then became aware when they start to, you know, bring in the home transplant machine and see you know, that kind of brings it home <clears throat> for a young couple like that to have that kind of yeah. machinery and like paraphernalia come into the house is, is a tough thing to see. And it's something that's an important time of people's lives, I suppose, in their relationship and their time. So that got me thinking, I guess, to see how is this going to go for John. And, and you went off on a solo run, Ollie. Yeah, I I did. I didn't, I think, I don't know if I just rang them or I Googled what, what do you do? I don't think I told anyone. I'm not sure if I told my wife or not. I just called the transplant office and you kind of tell them um, in Beaumont who you are and 
who you're interested in getting checked out for. And then I wasn't sure whether they'd tell you over the phone you're wasting your time, but um, they didn't. They're very extremely nice to deal with up there. They're really great people. So um, they made an appointment to go for a chat before they do any medicals. So I went up. That was kind of, I'd say mid-August. It's pretty quick turnaround. Mm. Like, I'd say it was mid-August um, when I called. And then you go up um, about two weeks later for um, a, a chat and initial bloods. And then that kind of starts it from there. And then once you come back, that your blood and tissue match, it kind of ramps up a little bit from there. So you were doing, as I say, a solo run. Uh, no, Dinah may have known, but John definitely and Tracy didn't know. Mm. Um, and at what stage then did you reveal? Um, I'd say when I went to, God, it was late. I think when, I, when they do the, the blood and tissue match um, is one thing. I think I, I did let them know after that match was there because obviously not been a blood relation. Um, hmm. I can't remember what the possibility of a match was been, but it's. I kind of said, "What's the chances of been a match to um, Andrea, um, the girl?" And she kind of said, "You'd be surprised. It, you know, can happen. Don't think it's not going to happen." So, once that came back, I kind of let them know um, I'm match. But that's only the first step. There's an you know extraordinary amount of small medical issues that people kind of had through their lives that ruled them out of been able to donate hmm. a kidney. In, you know, pretty insignificant things to your health can mean you're not a possible donor. So, okay. and John, all this time there were other people saying they might be available to offer you a kidney if they went through the whole rigor of the testing process. Yeah, there was. I'd say, look, it is. There's only probably four or five that I know of. There right. may have been others. Obviously, you're never told anything generally by the individual who's going forward or Beaumont definitely won't say anything to you so there may be more um, I think there was there was a fair few or out of that group that were rejected just at the at the initial call to Beaumont for whatever reason you know that wouldn't be explained to me and then there was I suppose my godfather Jimmy as well who I have to thank for making the call as well he at least got to a different stage with bloods but unfortunately it turned out that there was, a, there was an issue in the blood so he couldn't go forward but Upstepped Ollie anyway. I know it's glib to say it, but the, you know it's the thought that counts. These people were willing to, you know, offer yeah. up a kidney for you. Yeah, uh, no, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Obviously, Ollie's done the job. Um, yes, yeah. But I suppose for everyone who even made the call, there's some people that I know of, and there's maybe there's people that I don't know of. But you know, I'll never be able to tell them how much I appreciate it. You know, even just making that call. Yeah. I, I'm interested to know what's going on in your head because it's impossible. Like you can imagine what's going through their heads, but but you're the recipient. But they are giving you a kidney. They're giving you a part of their body. I'm I'm always fascinated by this and amazed. Uh, what were you thinking about the people who were coming forward and eventually Ollie? It's hard to put into words, really. You know, it's 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 very surreal. You know, because I'm in a bubble of where I'm I'm feeling unwell and I have these issues. But then just to have Ollie, like I'll never forget the day Ollie called me and said that he was just a match. Like the weight off my shoulders was absolutely unbelievable, you know. That's John Egan telling Ray Darcy how his stepfather-in-law-to-be, Ollie, ended up donating a kidney to him. Finally on Playback Daily, Claire Byrne was joined by Aoife Barry, assistant news editor at the journal.ie, and by producer-director Brian Redden to talk about some new movies coming our way in December. And they started with a discussion of Spielberg's new version of West Side Story. It's out next week. It's already been in cinemas in the United States. What's uh, the reaction been like, though, in the United States? 
it's been incredibly positive. I mean, when I first heard this, I was thinking, why would you remake a classic? I mean, the 1961 version of West Side Story is pretty flawless. There's no reason to redo it. And I wondered, oh, that's a very, very bad idea. But then you hear it's Steven Spielberg and you go, okay, well, it's Spielberg. So Spielberg very rarely makes a bad movie. And he's never made a musical, interestingly. In, in his vast career, he's never done a musical. So this is his first stab at it. Why he would want to do it, I, I, I don't know. Maybe he was just a fan of the original. But interestingly, what he's done is he hasn't tried to, you know, the, the tendency these days is to update the musicals, bring it into the modern day, retell the story, make it a COVID pandemic story, you know. <laughs> and thankfully he hasn't done that. He said it in the 50s. So it's still the original story set in the 50s uh, of course it's based on Romeo and Juliet anyway so it is a revamp in itself it's the star-crossed lovers it's Tony it's Maria it's got all the classic songs as he had a poignancy now of Stephen, Stephen Sondheim having passed away recently he wrote the lyrics uh, for the musical but it is getting absolutely rave reviews it's getting rave reviews because I think it harps back to a more innocent time and it harps back to you know a, a time where you know, where thank God no one's talking about you know COVID or pandemics and, and even though it is about rivalry between two bands at the heart uh, to uh, gangs rather at the heart of it is a love story a really simple love story mm. that dates right back to Shakespearean times so I think people are latching on to that nostalgic feel for it and also it has a lot has a link to the past as well I think which is kind of interesting and fair deals to Spielberg for, for casting or is Rita Marino who won an Oscar for playing Anita in the 1961 version is also in this film and produces this film so you know he's kind of had a nod to the, past, to the past as well as embracing uh, the present but you know you have songs like Maria and America oh listen we'll all, all, those we'll, all we'll all know, know all of that yeah. and Aoife you would, you would say the same would you that the plaudits that are coming in for this are likely well deserved yeah, I mean, you know, it's. I, I felt exactly same as Brian when I heard that it was being remade. I thought, why would like why would you do this? I mean, it's interesting. The film's been in development since twenty fourteen. So the the Kushner who started writing the screenplay started in twenty seventeen. So it's been been a long way in the works, you know. But anybody um, who's reviewed it has, um, like you said, given it really great reviews, and it also seems to have kept you know the old school film and stage show, but then also moved it slightly forward. So, for example, you have a totally Latinx cast playing the sharks, boys and girls of Puerto Rico and gang in it which you didn't totally have in, in the film and that there's themes in it that they're bringing out that maybe are more resonant now in a different way than they were you know when it was first staged on Broadway so I'm really interested to see it and also Steven Spielberg I mean we grew up with with everything that he's made that's been uh, pretty much outstanding so yeah. you know you know you're in safe hands he reared us he reared us <laughs> he did he effectively did <laughs> that's out on the 10th of December in three days time now the next one we're going to talk about is Spider-Man No Way Home let's take a clip that's right, folks. Spider-Man is, in fact, Peter Parker. Listen, I did not kill Mysterio. The drones did. The drones that are yours. Does any part of you feel relieved about all this? What do you mean? Now that everybody knows, you don't really have to hide or lie to people. For the record, I never wanted to lie to you. But how do you tell someone that you're Spider-Man? Now everybody knows. Hype ram around this as well out here on the 15th of December. Yeah, a lot of hype around this. So the last Spider-Man film uh, was in 2019. That was called Spider-Man Far From Home. And that ended, as you heard in that clip. The start of that clip was Spider-Man is revealed, right? So the world knows he's Peter Parker. So that's how that film ends. This film starts 
at that very moment. The whole world knows that Spider-Man and Peter Parker are one and the same. So Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, played brilliantly, I have to say, by Tom Holland, enlists the help of Doctor Strange to create a spell that will basically uh, uh, wipe the entire world's memory so that no one will realise that he is, in fact, that Peter Parker is, in fact, Spider-Man. So in creating this spell, what he does is he opens up all these different universes and it's a chance for all these other supervillains that have appeared in Spider-Man's past to come back. But what has set the kind of internet alight, and I've never seen anything like the hype around this movie, it's unbelievable, is the fact that other Spider-Men, other guys who played Spider-Man, may make an appearance in okay. this film. So Tobey Maguire <laughs> All may the Spider-Men. All the Spider-Men. A collective, yeah, the collective <laughs> Spider-Men. Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland may in fact all appear in this film. We don't know. But the trailer has been picked apart. As people are going over like the Zebruga footage in JFK's assassination, trying to find little clips and little little hints of who's in it. And, and, and does Andrew Garfield make an appearance? Does Tobey Maguire make an appearance? Whether you care or not, depends on, I suppose, whether you care or not about Spider-Man. Did but they- did I hear Tom Holland confirm that he's going to be playing Fred Astaire? Well, that's a brilliant bit of casting because Tom Holland's a great dancer. I don't know, was he allowed to say that though? Because yeah. he hasn't, it's not in production. He said he hadn't even he read hadn't even the read script. script. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like, I didn't realise he was such a great dancer. Like, he started off in the West End in I hope Billy for Elliot. For sake, he is. Yeah, if you look at him, if you Google him, uh, he was in Billy Elliot when he was 12 years of ah, age. Ah, okay. So he's a brilliant tap dancer and a brilliant ballet dancer. So, in fact, he can really that dance. And he sense. bears a passing resemblance to Fred Astaire. I so hope they do be... a good job on that one. Oh, yeah, I hope they don't mess that one up. Aoife, the Matrix Resurrections is your next cinema pick. Yeah, so that's going to be out on the 24th of December. So it was originally supposed to come out in May uh, before the pandemic hit. I mean, if people think back to 1999 when The Matrix came out, it became such a massive phenomenon. I mean, when you look at it as well, it was an original concept. Like we're so used to seeing sci-fi films now that often come from a concept that's based on a comic book or something else like that. This is totally original concept, um, you know, that people didn't expect. They got amazing special effects with it. It was influenced by, you know, philosophy, the Bible, fairy tales, comic books everything and it told the story of Neo we had the world's uh, blue pill and red pill and the matrix became kind of part of our lexicon after it came out there was originally supposed to be just a trilogy three films but now this is the fourth one so it's a sequel to the matrix revolutions which came out in 2003 and it's directed by Lana Wachowski who's one of the two sisters who made the original matrix film um with this one we do know that Neo basically was kind of living his life as normal so far he went back to his original identity as Thomas Anderson a therapist starts giving him blue pills to help kind of counteract the strange things that he keeps seeing He meets a woman who seems to be Trinity from the original film. They don't recognise each other. But then a new version of Morpheus hands him a red pill and reopens his mind and he returns to the world of the Matrix. And it looks so good. Aoife Barry talking up the Matrix sequel Resurrections on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Aoife was joined on the movie Conversation by Brian Redden. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. I'll be back with another Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.